This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Melissa Ashley, welcome back to Better Reading. Thanks for having me. Melissa is the author of historical fiction novels, The Bee and the Orange Tree and The Birdman's Wife, which won the Queensland Literary Award Fiction Prize and the ABA Bookseller Choice Award and also sold its socks off, I'll add that. She has published a collection of poetry, The Hospital for Dolls, as well as short stories, essays and academic articles. Melissa is passionate about historical women's forgotten lives, particularly in science. So she's here today to talk about her latest novel, The Naturalist of Amsterdam. It gives a voice to the long-ignored women who shaped our understanding of the natural world, both the artists and those who made their work possible. I want to touch on that because I've been in this industry a very, very long time and women's voices in terms of fiction really didn't come to play until I'd say, and I I don't have any accuracy around this data, this is just my memory, really in the last 10 years. And historical fiction in particular has become very, very popular. I think the audience was already there. We just weren't writing about it. Yeah, I think that's really true. I write about women in science and women in art who've been forgotten about. And I think that in a way, women in literature maybe have come forward first and people have read about them and their stories have been told. But yeah, there seems to be a real hunger for that now. And it seems to have really blossomed as well. There are many, so for, in Australia, there's such a healthy um, market and such healthy writing about all sorts of colonial women who have contributed to our culture in various ways. And they're sort of brought out from behind their kind of more famous husbands. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've been following Anna Funder recently. She wrote that book, Wifedom, incredible story. And we had her in for a podcast. I mean, she's so, I love her so much, but her thinking is so crazy because I said to her, I asked her where where the idea came from for mm-hmm. Wifedom in the book. And this is what she told me. So it's not verbatim, but it's pretty close. She said she was at the local shopping centre, which is only down the road from here because she lives locally. And she was pushing, you know, I think this was during COVID or just before whatever, you know, she's got all these groceries and she's pushing a trolley and she has a family, a husband and children. And she thought, why me? Why is it my job to be doing this? Right. And then that triggered her to go home and read George Orwell. There's the crazy, right? <laughs> that's that's a um, the connection between those two things is really fascinating, isn't, isn't it? it? I don't know. But... And there she discovered Mrs. Orwell. Yes, I've forgotten yes, her name now, but yeah. you know. And then she's written a book about that. Yes. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I caught her in Brisbane. Yeah, she she um, did. Came you and did a launch there. Yeah, it, really, really interesting story. And 
that's what I think I look at in my books is just, um, I mean, I think that one of the problems for women to work and to have a career, it, it's always tied up with those responsibilities, those nurturing responsibilities or um, like, like with George Orwell's wife to sort of look after him so that he could be this great writer. And yeah. for whatever reason, women sometimes seem to make that choice, I suppose, and that's interesting yeah. to explore perhaps why that is yes. um, in, in fiction today. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. I've never spoken about this before on this podcast, but I'm going to now because I think it's relevant. Many years ago, I was married to a painter, right? He's still a painter. Mm-hmm. We're just not married. <laughs> and lovely time, great relationship, you know, ended badly. But when I reflect on it now, right, because he's become more and more famous as, as time's gone on, I genuinely believe that I wouldn't have had the career I had had we still been together. Yeah, well, that yeah, that could very well be it. Because perhaps, I'm not sure, did he take up a lot of yeah. airspace and everything with of what, the conditions that he needed in order to... To paint. Yeah, and to keep life running smoothly, which yeah. is sometimes what the wife does. And that's right. And he needed constant, you know, affirmation. He needed... Oh. I mean, I loved it. Like, I'm not complaining. And I was in into it as well. I was so happy about him painting and his success. But do you know, if we hadn't separated, it would have come at a price for me mm, mm. on reflection. Yeah, you so know. It's, yeah, so it's not just the physical support, it's it's the emotional as well. And that's something that we're talking about now, isn't it, sort of in our yeah. culture? Like we talk a lot more about the emotional labour that women do supporting those they love and those in their families. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And all I wanted was success for him, you know. Yeah. Like it wasn't – there was no animosity around that. But I gave up a lot. Mm. Yeah. It's, inter- it's interesting, isn't it? And I've heard people say, and, and maybe you get this, I've heard people say about Anna Fonda, you know, oh, her husband's fantastic. Right. You know, meaning yep. that, you know, he supports her while yes. she's writing, yes. you know. Yes. And I think, what? She's yes. fantastic. That's and women right. are always fantastic That's towards right. career and supporting their partners. Or Not all women, but most people are. So it's interesting that you wouldn't get that comment if it was the other way around, I that's, think. Yeah, that's right. How do you deal with that? In terms of my own life or yes. in terms of my writing? No, your own life. Um, I'm fortunate in a way. Uh, my husband's actually really supportive of, of my writing and he's yeah. a writer himself. So he's a ah. he's a poet, B.R. Dionysius, and he's written about eight books. And but I didn't know that. Yeah, and yeah. so he's a teacher as well. And I suppose in a way we... We really support each other because that's that's what drew us together, literature. Yes. That's where we met in the poetry scene and everything. So, um, <laughs> did you meet? We did. <laughs> That is so goddamn cute and romantic. Yes, we met at a poetry reading, and he was the he was the organizer, and he had a beret. That is why I love that. We drank red wine, and yeah, I wanted to be a poet for a while. Yeah. Yes, but I ended up being a novelist. My poems were too long, but but he is. I'm lucky. He is really supportive of of what I do, and so. you of him. I am, yes, yeah. of course, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about you know. So you thought you might might be a poet, and then. <laughs> You couldn't kind of condense it <laughs> as That's need right. be. Yes. Tell me how you came to writing because really your f- it wasn't your first book, was it, The Birdman's Wife, but the success of that book was so phenomenal. Tell me how you got there and how you got to writing and then I want to know the journey about how difficult it is then to follow that up. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it's taken me quite some time, I think, to be a published author 
I did actually have a book of poetry out, so that was my first book, and I was about 30 then, and I studied writing at university, so I did a master's degree, and I wrote a couple of novels before The Birdman's Wife, and I tried really hard to get them published, so I took them to a manuscript appraisal service and, and showed them to people, but both of them in, in different ways had, had some problems. And then I had writing groups and I was doing my PhD. That was my, uh, the Birdman's Wife came out of my PhD, although it was a creative writing PhD. And I came to Elizabeth Gould and John Gould through bird watching. Mm. And then I was, I really loved these antique natural history illustrations, which has continued on, continued on with The Naturalist of Amsterdam, my latest book. And... I read a biography about John Gould and I found out that Elizabeth Gould, for the first 10 years of his kind of home business, she was the illustrator and he couldn't afford at the time. This is She sort of helped him make his name. If it wasn't for her, I don't think he would have become who he was. He couldn't afford to hire a painter and so she did all the painting and the lithography. So I just fell in love with her, I suppose. I was She was... In this biography of John Gould, she was this mysterious, interesting character and I really wanted to find out more about her. I just was really fascinated by that. So originally I wanted to be a contemporary literary writer but I veered into historical fiction because I just fell in love with Elizabeth Gould and I was very passionate about birdwatching at the time. And yeah, as you say, I was just so lucky to have a hit with The Birdman's Wife. Like that was the most incredible, um, fortunate experience in terms of having my first work of fiction published. Yeah. Um, There is such a fascination with nature as well. I think that you write about that really well and really accurately. You know, um, I live in an urban environment. I live near a park, just an Mm -hmm. urban park, but it's a beautiful park and there's kookaburras. And the awe of the cook... I mean, there's minor birds and everything Mm -hmm. else, but it's the kookaburra that gets me every time. Every time I see that bird... It brings me great happiness. And it could be every single day. Like there are a lot of, I don't know how kookaburras live, but I think they live in family groups Mm. and there's quite a lot in the park. Anyway, I have this great nephew and we sit on this park bench in the afternoon after school. Mm. He'll sit with me. He calls it our bench. (laughs) And we look up and we often see a kookaburra. And I said to him, look at that kookaburra. And he says, Cheryl, we saw that yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) But I can see it every day yeah. and soon he will realise the value of that. Yeah, yeah. I love it how that um, the sound of the kookaburra makes oh, you feel happy. Because when I go for my walk in the morning, there's um, a pair of king parrots and there's also uh, yellow-headed rosellas as well. There's a pair of those. So along my walk, I see them every day and they're obviously the same birds and they always make me happy too. Don't they do, don't they? They do, yeah. yeah. And I can be in my kitchen making my breakfast coffee mm. and all of a sudden they're all laughing at the one yeah, time and that's yeah. 5.36, like very, very early. And I will stop. And I will listen until they finish and then I'll get back to what I'm doing because it brings me great joy. Yeah. See, John Gould, when he came to Australia, he couldn't cope with... He just found the harshness of our birds' cries. He he found it really strange. It was very... But they're loud. Yeah. And he, you know, I suppose in Europe there are lots of songbirds. And so, yeah, getting used to the, the sounds, like the kookaburra is probably a really good example of our birds, was um, something I suppose he hadn't expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we, I could talk about kookaburras yeah. forever. <laughs> so we'll keep going on. Okay, so you had the success of the first book, The Birdman's Wife. 
And I, I think that, that that's a gift and not a gift, you know, because then you have to produce a second, mm-hmm. right? Talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, producing the second book, there is this expectation and there is a little bit of pressure on you. I was really fortunate in that I received a grant from the Australia Council and I went to Paris for three months to oh, research wow. my characters. The book was about these French fairy tale writers who, who ran so what's the literary name? salons. The name of the second um, The book? Bee and the Orange Tree. That's right. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I was lucky to live in Paris for three months in order to write that, but I definitely felt this pressure and and can I write the second book, like can I do it? I was really lucky with The Birdman's Wife because it was my... There were kind of no stakes in a way and I had a lot more time to write The Birdman's Wife whereas I was on a contract for the next book and I sort of had to get serious about it. So, And then writing my third book has been a different process again because I feel like I've come back to my home in a way with, with my writing, yeah. Um, talk to me about your three months in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I got uh, a residency with Did the, the poet go with you? No, no. No. Okay. <laughs> now, this is an example. This is an example of a, a reverse, really, of the uh, husband supporting the wife. My husband very kindly took his long service leave while I went to Paris and looked after our two children. Oh, yeah, So wow. that was very, that was very generous of him. And, yeah, so three months and at this International City Day Art which is there are about 500 rooms. You have artists from all over the world with every single different art form you can imagine and, and we have fellowships for from three to six months. Some people love it so much that they kind of pay for the room and, and stay for 12 months. Wow. And, yeah, so one of the great things about that community was I don't speak French and so the international language of that community was English which was wonderful and I was in the Marai and um, you know something I love about being overseas and and I seem to write about Europe is is just immersing myself just immersing myself in in Paris and obviously there's lots of buildings there that are from the era the 17th century that I was writing about and it was just wonderful. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know, I love travel so much. And for those that listen to this podcast know that because I'm always off somewhere. <laughs> and I like to stay somewhere like Anchor. I don't, I'm not a two-day two city mm-hmm. person or anything like that. If I go, I go and stay for a length of time. And I am in awe every day, like even getting on a bus mm-hmm. because it's a different experience to mm-hmm. what I know. And somebody asked me recently, like, what is the fascination? And I said, I think it's the shock of the new. Mm. Is it? 
it's just so different to our normal routines. It's exciting. Yeah, and I think for writing, you've got to shake yourself up, mm. I guess. And I was lucky to spend a little bit of time for the book I've just written, a little bit of time in Amsterdam. It was actually, I went to visit Amsterdam while I was on the residency in France. And yeah, for me, it's really important to go to the place to to feel, I suppose, the confidence to, to write because, you know, writing historically, you're imagining what the past was like, but then you've got the environment, you've got the place as well that you're imagining and it's, yeah. it's really great to visit it, you know, yeah. living in Australia. Yeah, I went to Italy this year to looking at my a book that I'm I'm starting to write, and I so was doing some research there. So you've got an excuse for travel, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but that was yeah, like you're saying, the shock of the new, and and I went to Venice, and I hadn't been before, but I just felt like I was in the 16th century. So I just like that. I just live yeah. in a dream and wander around. It's, you know, it's a wonder I don't bump into things, but I'm just in a totally different place, and I just love that just like mm. you I just love mm. it mm. all right tell me a little bit about the naturalist of Amsterdam where the idea came from and how you made it happen how you wrote it yes yeah, so I have been with Marissa Billamerian who is the woman who inspired the book she's known as the first ecologist so I've been with her for about nine years in my mind and I first heard of her when I was doing The Birdman's Wife that's when wow. I first wow. heard about her one of my supervisors was an art historian and I went and looked at the beautiful plates that she she drew them, she etched them and she printed them and then she hand-coloured them and these are these lovely, it's botanical and etymology and um, flower and butterfly and insect art on her lovely plates. So I went and looked that up online and had a look and it was just so gorgeous and sort of fell in love with her and I wanted to write about her. I thought she'd be a great character for the sort of writing that I do, but she really overwhelmed me and Mm. I couldn't find a way in to tell her story. She's not a household name, but people know who she is in sort of scientific and artistic circles. You know, there there are biographies and there there are various books about her achievements and I, yeah, I, I was just overwhelmed and I couldn't find a way to to get in and what, what was the story I was going to tell about her. And then, I, and then I found a book about her daughters and I found out that she had this artist studio, as was the case in, in Amsterdam at the time. If you were born into an artistic family, you were trained as an artist and you would marry an artist from your father's studio. But what was really unusual about Maria was that she was the master artist. It was usually a man and she trained her daughters to be artists and that then I, I had this idea, oh, maybe I could tell the story through the daughter's perspective. And then I still didn't quite have it. I really wanted to write about her. And this is a process that happens to me all the time. It takes me some, I do a lot of research, but it takes me maybe a year or two to figure out how to tell the story. And so I I came across another book about Dorothea Graff, who's the point of view character in the book. And after her mother died, she had this whole other career in Russia. She went to St. Petersburg and she went to work for Peter the Great. And that gave me the last piece of information. It's like an imaginative, it's imaginative. It's not, I don't necessarily use that material in the novel, but it gave me, it gave me enough, yeah, material to know that she was solid enough in my imagination to write about. And so, yeah, that's what's behind, behind the story. Mm. And so there is a th- theme with all your books and it's nature and it's 
and as you say, it's science. Um, is it that we need more of that in our lives? I, you know, like we have to be reminded, to, you know, to walk in the park, you know, um, and we're most of us live in urban environments, but it's very easy to get to nature, you know, and as I said, it can be just a, a, an urban park like mine. Talk to me about that relationship with us as humans, the relationship between nature and humans. Um, that's a really relevant question for Maria Sibylla Merian yes. because when she was 13, she became really interested in the process of metamorphosis and she raised silkworms and she, her project, I suppose, what she wanted to do for her readers, so she produced these beautiful artistic books with scientific observations. She studied, she produced two books about European moths and butterflies and then the um, South American book about the insects of Suriname and she really wanted her readers to fall in love with the insect and plant world just as she had yeah. and she wanted and she wrote about it in the in the um, reader's address at the beginning of her books she wanted to awaken their curiosity and and their joy from I suppose encountering her absolutely beautiful art and then maybe that opened people's eyes and then, then wait, as you're saying, like when they went out into their gardens and, and into their towns and parks, then they're looking with fresh eyes and they're finding, you know, finding the wonder in, in the natural world. So she, mm. even back in the 17th and early 18th century, Maria Sibylla Marion perhaps needed to bring nature to her readers because it was thought that insects were evil and, and not interesting and not worth studying. So she sort right. of was quite... Yeah. She had quite a niche area. Mm. I'm not meaning to trivialise um, your work because I love it, but <laughs> in these very dark times that we're in at the moment, like global, I mean, I'm finding it really hard to switch off to what's happening. And this is a terrible confession, and I don't know if I've ever told anyone this, but one of my relaxations in the evening before I go to bed as looking at elephant and dog videos... <laughs> Elephants in particular, because I feel as though I have an affinity with an elephant. I don't know why, but I love those animals so much. And I love their playfulness. I love how they care for each other. I love how they care for their young. And I feel, I mean, I have a dog and I feel the same way about dogs. But when I meet people that don't have a connection with animals, it is something that I can barely understand. Oh, I love that, that you... I didn't even know that there was, I suppose, it's like a subgenre in a way of like elephant videos, like the cat ones, because yes. my husband and, you know, he loves cat videos and he just gets yes. off he goes in the reels and he, yes. he makes me look at them and everything. And yeah, I completely understand that. But that's, I really, I'm going to have know. to check that out now with the, oh, with the, the elephants. elephants. There's others. Pandas yeah. are beautiful as well. Oh. Do you know pandas? Mm -hmm. I wonder what their place is on earth other than okay. being cute. <laughs> They are just got to eat all that bamboo. <laughs> yeah, they got to eat all of that bamboo. But it is really a leveller, isn't it? Mm. Nature versus us. We have to live with it. A friend of mine um, got stuck. I think it was in Kuala Lumpur, or maybe it was Hong Kong. I can't remember where, what city, but it was in an Asian city during COVID. So mm. right at the beginning, they were on their way somewhere, and they got stuck. You know, everything closed down, and they ended up in a hotel like for three months or something. And this hotel was in a park. I think it was KL. And he's a nature lover as well. Mm. And he, over the time, 
he started seeing all the animals coming mm. back to the park. Mm. Yeah, he saw monkey, all sorts of animals just coming back and reclaiming. That's right, yeah. And you'd, you'd also get to know their patterns a little bit as well, like mm. having three months to observe them. So That's as right. you kept observing them, they're coming back and then you'd, you'd get to know them in a way and... And look at their habits. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, and that's a good something to concentrate on, isn't it? You know, yeah. At that really dark yeah. time. Yeah, I um, I mean, of course, COVID was awful. Mm. You know, I mean, so many hit cities were hit so badly, and I think we were lucky. We took good precautions and and were lucky, but so many lives lost. However, I do think we didn't take that opportunity to maybe start thinking about living differently. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the animals can come back and we can live, you know, like there are so many things. We just went back to what we were and mm-hmm. I think that that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. We're very spoiled in Australia, like we particularly are. with our bird life and we do live perhaps closer to nature in some yeah. of our very green treed cities. So, yeah, yeah, maybe we have to appreciate it more and, and learn more about it and get in, get in touch more with more with it because when I do bird watching, maybe it's a little bit like your elephant videos. I find it incredibly stress releasing and I go into this zone. It's almost like meditation, but it's an incredible place. My husband and I, it's a really nice time of year to bird watch at the moment. So my husband and I get up really early in the weekends and go and have a bird watch and it's just so nourishing and um, it's replenishing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I'm giggling because, you know, often, very often people would think, oh, when I was younger yeah. and sillier, <laughs> if you had told me you're a bird watcher, I'd have thought, oh, she's crazy, right? Whereas now, yeah. that's so interesting to yeah. me. And yeah. birds are beautiful. They are. Yeah. We are so spoiled. In southeast Queensland, where I live, we are we have about 350 species of birds. So, yeah, wow. Um, why has a kookaburra, do you know the, the answer to the, I don't want to ask you things you don't know, but why has a kookaburra maintained its, you know, which I love, but has been around a large kind, you know, they've got a, they're here and they're with Mm. us. How how come they've been so resilient? They must be, they must adapt to many different environments. So they're sort of um, like a crow or something. They can eat a a range of things and they can, yeah, they can survive. There must be a generalist, you know, they can survive in different places. They're not as specialised as other birds that, that are harder to see. Yeah. yeah, and they're hard to miss, aren't they? As well, yeah. <laughs> they're loud and yes. they're beautiful. Uh, what's your favourite bird? Uh, I really, it was a superb fairy wren for a long time, which is, oh, was beautiful. the cover of the yes. Birdman's Wife. I really love rainbow bee eaters. I was on an artist camp recently in um, northwestern Queensland, and they had these. I was with someone who had this huge lens on their camera to photograph birds. And, yeah, she took beautiful photos of rainbow beaters, which is they're, – they're so pretty. Pretty, yeah. A friend of mine um, is a wildlife photographer and often um, takes bird photos and they just – you could look at them for hours. Mm. I'm often fascinated too because, you know, the rainbow lorikeets who have, mm-hmm. you know, full force here and we've got many in, in the park as well, they're always so busy. Mm. Busy working, always looking after something. What are we going to do about the minor birds? I'm not sure. There are some conservationists actually think they should be culled. Mm, I've heard um, that. Because they're aggressive colonisers and they just move in everywhere, don't they? they they're, do. And, and they, they're they, always they, following the kookaburras. In oh, our they heart. attack everything. They yes. attack. They'll attack um, a raptor. You know, mm, they, they'll they attack don't my care. dog, John Brown. They yeah, always they attack, attack my cat. Yeah, yeah. So they're. 
Yeah, like with um, Indian miners, which, you know, they're not a native species, they actually do cull them. You know, you, you can get, it's, it's okay because they're a pest. But yeah, there's, I guess there's just different ideas about what to do. But yeah, I don't, I don't know because they yeah. just keep coming back. Yeah. They're like yeah, a yeah. cockroach or yeah, a yeah. cane toad. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Yep. All right, well, <laughs> The Naturalist of Amsterdam is the book. Melissa, always lovely to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was lovely to talk. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.